Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I'm with my co-host, Melton Demers. She's from CoinShares. You know her and love her. And Packy McCormick, not boring. Hello, people. Hello. Yo, yo, yo. We're going to get right into this. We're going to do a little AMA. We're going to start with crypto, and then we're going to do a little AMA with the stock market. There's obviously a lot to talk about, but before we get into that, both of you guys, I track you, I stalk you guys both on Twitter. Both of you guys changed your Twitter avatars. Meltem, you in the last week have gone, I think from an NFT, I can't remember which, to an absolutely gorgeous picture of yourself. I just wanted to say that, first things first. Not an NFT, I had a picture of a cartoon bear drinking a beer. So I was a bear for like a solid month. Then I changed my photo to a male version of myself. I went through a phase that I call the Chad melt phase, where I briefly experimented being a Chad. And you know what's crazy is like all my female friends are in love with the male version of me. So my brother is single. The male version of me, my brother actually looks like that. So promo, he's in crypto. He's super smart. He's a mathematician. If anyone's single, DM me. So slide into Chad Melt's DMs. Is that what you're saying there? This is now a dating show. But yeah, now I'm back to being myself. That's the old version of me, the mid-30s version of me, which is serious, Dan. I want people to think I'm serious. I love what you got. And then, Packy, you went from Duke Crypto Bro hat behind you to a beautiful NFT. What's going on there? What's the new PFP? This is Aku. This is a company that I invested in out of the fund called Y Media. This project called Aku, this guy, Micah Johnson, former Major League Baseball player, overheard a four-year-old black boy asking his aunt if black kids could be astronauts. And the whole project came from this idea of this character, Aku, who's this young black astronaut and internet explorer who walks around with a helmet. They had a wild, wild, wild project launch. They launched 15,000 Akutars. And then because of a bug in the smart contract, $35 million got just locked in the contract. And I was telling my wife about it. And she's like, all right, well, they can just like unlock the contract, right? And it's like, no, 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 $35 million worth of ETH just locked in the contract. They're not getting it back. Unfortunately, the company in the project ate that, but none of the owners and holders were armed or lost anything. So they handled the project super, super well. But I just love the art. All right, guys, let's hit the markets here quickly. AMA, I'm the fast money guy. I'm the stock market guy. What do you think is going on here? Do you think this is about as insane as you've seen in the markets in a while here? And what do you need broken down? We're going to get to your crypto stuff. and You guys are going to educate me on all of that. But for me, 
it's been probably one of the wackiest months in the stock market that I can recall since the global financial crisis. And a lot of the price action, if you think about it holistically across the whole risk asset landscape, reminds me of things I haven't seen in 20 years also. So I'm just curious how you guys are thinking about this, because whether you like it or not, your crypto has become a macro asset. And it is a really, I think, important part, at least from a sentiment standpoint. I'm just curious how you guys are thinking about the markets, the stock market in particular here. It was a really good run that we had over the past few years. Is it a little bit oversold in certain names at this point? Certainly, is there a lot of pain left to come in others? Almost certainly. To me, I think the really interesting challenge now is kind of figuring out what just was completely overhyped and actually doesn't make any sense going forward and which theses I still feel pretty strongly about. I think it's easy to say like, look, I'm bullish on technology over the next decade. Are we going to be in the next decade having people on the moon and probably on Mars? Are we going to cure all sorts of diseases? Are we going to build new economic structures through crypto and Web3? All this stuff probably true if you wake up in a decade. So I think the really fun thing now is picking through the pile and saying like, actually, shit, that was actually a really bad idea. And we shouldn't have gotten so excited about that over the past few years. And I still feel really bullish on this other class of things and these particular assets. For you, Packy, I mean, you obviously have launched two VC funds over the last year. You have the opportunity to find some very early stage companies, founders that will able to take on some of those big challenges. When I think of the stock market right here, it's funny you use the term overhype. One of the things I'd say that's really different about this phase, and you couldn't say that about crypto, but there were just a lot of managements. There were a lot of companies, publicly traded companies, ex-SPACs. They weren't really hypey. When I think about what's happened over the last two years, especially coming out of the pandemic, I don't know if we're considered out of the pandemic, you haven't seen corporate managements, too many of them get over their skis as it relates to guidance. It really was an investor mindset, if you will. It had to do with cheap money, and that's worked its way into all different parts of the markets and risk-taking. So I'm curious, Melton, you've been through a couple cycles here. What's gone on under the surface over the last year and a half in the stock market has been the thing that's gotten my antennas up massively. And it was heavily correlated to the sentiment around crypto and coming to public markets, however you were doing that. So I'm just curious for you, we only have a NASDAQ that's down 27% from its all-time highs. The S&P that's only down 15%. I think the average bear market in the post-war period, and we've had about 14 of them, is about 30% or so. So a lot of this has to do with monetary policy. I'm just curious your take on it and come back at me, guys. Again, I'm the fast money guy. I'm here to talk markets. Look, Dan, it's very simple for me. My dad's a scientist. He raised me on the laws of thermodynamics, which dictate the realm of what's possible in the universe. Same thing in capital markets. As a corporate finance nerd, there are three fundamental truths. It's the balance sheet, income statement, free cash flow. That's your holy grail as a company. It doesn't matter how sexy your company is or how visionary what you're doing is. If at some point you do not make money, it makes no fucking sense for people to own your stock. Like that is just a reality. Same thing with what we're talking about in crypto. If at some point there isn't some use case for what you're doing beyond speculation, that doesn't make sense. And at some point the music will stop. So I think one is there are a ton of companies like Zoom trading at a 1200x forward PE multiple. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. GameStop trading at 800x doesn't make sense. At the same time right now, Coinbase getting hammered in the market. Coinbase makes a lot of money. Right now they're trading at a 5x PE multiple, which is nutty to me because that puts it in the territory of not sexy stocks. And that is a growth stock. It's a growth company. So we're seeing mispricing all over the place. 
So I think, again, we have to look at the fundamentals, data, 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 data. I get caught up in speculative trends. I don't put my entire portfolio in speculative trends. Yes, I bought Tesla. Did I make it 50% of my portfolio? No, because I have a brain and I want to keep my money. The second trend that I think is much more important is the mass participation of retail and markets and investing as entertainment during the pandemic and most likely going forward. The issue is that most Americans had never really engaged with their finances until suddenly they were living in this new world where like you're sitting at home, you don't have anything to do. Everyone's talking about the market meltdown. So what do you do? You start talking about markets. I spent more time during the pandemic talking with my friends about crypto stocks, options trading than I ever have in my life. My female friends in their mid thirties who I'd normally never talk with markets about were like, what should I be buying? What should I be investing? I feel left behind. I got to catch up. I have a Robinhood account. I funded it. What should I be buying? So I think this idea of investing is entertainment, the accessibility and ease with which retail can invest, plus the availability of high quality information or not so high quality information, the rise of influencers has made investing just a part of culture, part of the zeitgeist. It's cool to be into finance. It's cool to be into managing your money. And at the end of the day, everyone looks at what's happening, right? Household debt is at an all-time high, yet we're in a period of fiscal tightening. Inflation's at an all-time high. There is no way out of this mess that doesn't equal a lot of pain. So honestly, I don't blame people. Like if the difference is gambling versus having nothing, a lot of people are doing that risk reward calculation saying it's worth gambling, not justifying it, but I understand the mindset. We're in for some pain. I don't know how we get out of this mess. It's not pretty. You know how we get out of it, Meltem? And this is just my experience. So everything that you said about the retail trader could have been said into the lead up of the 2000 top and then again into the 2007 and top. And what happens is, is that you have these periods and you've spoken about in crypto, the, what you call it, the period of disillusionment or something, you know, in that 18, 19 period. We're going to have that. I mean, there's just enough of these people who had the government transfers and nothing to do. I think they go away. I really do. And I think that's one of the reasons why Robinhood is a hat size right now. And I think that that was their conduit for doing all of that. And I hate to tell you, Coinbase goes much lower probably before it goes higher. It's profitable on an adjusted basis, not on the gap basis. And that's exactly the sort of thing that's getting punished right now. If you were to go into a bear market, that thing's toast. And again, it just is what it is. I've seen these in different cycles. So the one thing, though, that has been consistent about all of these cycles, and I don't think it's going to be different this time, is that time. It just takes time. We're going to overshoot on the downside the same way that we just overshot on the upside. But, Packy, you do a really great job and intertwine it into a lot of your posts and not boring, especially the stuff that you're thinking about in the private markets and you're writing about. You use some public comps here. There's a lot of stuff that looks really interesting. Things like Netflix was at $700. It's at $177. The market didn't like the big pivot, but man, I'm sure as somebody who's studied many, many CEOs, you want to bet in favor of Reed Hastings figuring out the next thing. Evan Spiegel's probably a guy I want to bet on if that stock gets to five times sales. There's a lot of stuff that's pretty interesting out there. The one that I'm going to bang the drum on that the people absolutely hate, but I'm going to keep banging the drum on it because I think it's the best risk reward out there maybe, is Open Door at $3 billion market cap when they're doing $8 billion in volume and making a profit for the first time. And the bet that I'm making there is not like anything on home buying or I love their bips for breakfast. Buying a house sucks. And a lot of people saw how shitty that process is over the past two years as more and more people have bought a house. And somebody's going to make that UX better. And I think that years of experience that they've had and the processes they've built put them in a really good spot to be that company and to get that for under $4 billion. Netflix, I don't want to bet it against Reed Hastings, but 
At the same time, you're facing competition from Amazon and Apple when they don't need to make any money on the product. You're facing competition from Disney, which is the oldest content and IP house in the game. I don't see their moats as being quite as strong as the others. Whatever other thing comes out that takes people's time and attention, I think you're getting squeezed on both sides if you're Netflix from user-generated content and from these big, deep-pocketed competitors that... That one's actually a little bit scarier, but if there's still big broken markets out there that can be fixed by new players and they have a model that might potentially be sustainable, I'm getting excited about a lot of those. We've had Jeff Richards from GGV Capital on. In my opinion, he's a very unique investor who's got tremendous insight into public market SaaS companies. And we've talked through some of this stuff. And it was really interesting that last week, Guy Dami and I, we do something called the market calls. Last Wednesday, it was like May 4th. We put up a screen, Amanda obviously did this, of six SaaS stocks that had market caps of over $20 billion that had price to sales multiples of over 20 times that were also already down, probably cut in half. Since then, those six stocks had all gone down 20-some percent in like three or four trading days. And the point was, is that nothing was immune, no matter how good the story was, how good the growth was. And so I just think it's interesting that that sort of mentality is not something that turns on a dime. And I think it really is a reset in valuations, a reset in what the landscape is going forward. And I'm just curious, Melton, you just put heads down, the listener can't see you. You're either doing some hedging trades or you're buying some open door. But are you seeing unusual opportunities? Is this the first time in a long time where you've wanted to buy some beaten up tech stocks over maybe some crypto? I think for me, again, Dan, I'm trying to be realistic here. I think the pain is far from over. The reality is people are hurting. People are worried about how they're going to make ends meet. So I'm not necessarily deploying yet. I think same thing in crypto. We had a little bit of a relief rally. Bitcoin briefly dipped below 30K, is now at around 32K. The pain's not over. I think we have lower to go. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm certainly not hoping for it. But I do think there is more pain ahead. I think the fact that you're still seeing such massive valuation dislocations and such a big disconnect between private and public markets, to me, is indicative of the fact that there's still some price discovery waiting to happen. And so I'm not deploying yet. I'm kind of sitting back and taking inventory. I think right now things feel wobbly, right? And let's not forget, commodities are facing a whole shitstorm. We have China locked down again. If you look at the shipping charts and you see how many cargo ships are off the shore of China right now and cannot get into a port, cannot get unloaded, cannot get reloaded, it's actually insane. If we look at just the dip in the U.S. strategic oil reserve, it's insane. If we look at the shortages in different fundamental commodities, if we look at the shortages even in semiconductors, I am deeply concerned that we are not factoring in some of these very practical realities. We love to imagine that we live in this digital world. The reality is everything that happens with bits and bytes is fully dependent on atoms, fully dependent on things that exist in the physical world. And the push I'm seeing for ESG, the push I'm seeing for policies that just do not make sense and further harm the manufacturing sector and the commodity sector deeply concerning to me. So I want to see how things play out. Not deploying yet, ready to, but I don't think we're quite there yet because things still feel really upside down to me. 
Well, they seem very stagflationary and to the point that the Fed is hiking into a weakening economy despite all of these disconnects in the supply chains and the supply-demand dynamics in some of these commodities. All right, listen, when we come back, let's hit crypto hard. It's going to be my questions, your answers. Be right back. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. One of the things I'll just say is it seems like we're in a very buggy period with crypto right now and a whole host of things. And again, I think that a lot of it is because it's all being live tweeted every day or it's going on in the Discord. So it's a lot more apparent than other tech cycles that maybe all of us have been through over the last, call it 20 years, probably me longer than you guys. And I want to start with you, Melton, because the other day, I think it was May 1st, you tweeted something about I'm bullish. You didn't spell it B-U-L-L-I-S-H. I'm sure that's a crypto thing. But you said I think there's a lot of pain to come. And you've had a lot of really great informative threads. You had a thread yesterday with a lot of data about what's going on or what you see is going on. Talk to us a little bit about it, because if you're a stock market guy like me, who's been crypto curious for the last few years, you look at a lot of things that make sense to you in the markets that you've come up in, right? And so when I look at this Bitcoin chart, though, and I know a lot of people are obsessed with the technicals of this thing, it's at a really key level, hovering above this 30,000 level. And below that is the 2017 high and the breakout level from late 2020 or so at 20,000. And a lot of people who are not hodlers are like, uh-oh, am I going to have the opportunity to buy this much lower? So should I sell it here? What's going on here, Melton? Yeah. And look, Dan, I think you made the point precisely. Crypto Twitter, very active place. There's a lot of pontification. But my job and your job as a capital markets person is we look at data and we use data to understand sentiment and sentiment is important. But a lot of times I think you see pontificating without any sort of basis or substance. And the blockchain is this great tool because we have this incredible transparency as to what people are doing with their assets, where their capital is moving, et cetera, that we wouldn't have in traditional markets. So let's just quickly break it down. So crypto tends to operate in cycles. And I've always said Bitcoin is a cyclical asset. It has higher highs, but also higher lows. So in the typical cycle, in the cycles we've had over the last 10 years, I've been in this market professionally for the last eight years, we've typically seen from peak to trough, there's an 80% drawdown. Bitcoin is currently 50% below all-time highs. We peaked at 69,000 in November of 2021. We're currently hovering at around 30 to 32,000. So we're at around a 50% drawdown. So if we go to 80% or so, we'd be looking at around 14K, which is actually 4X higher than the low we had in January 2020. So just context. So that's what's going on. I think there's still room 
Number two, we're actually seeing inflows. So CoinShares, we produce a weekly fund flows report where we track inflows and outflows into structured products in the crypto space. So actually last week we saw, despite Bitcoin softening and dropping from around 44K to around 35K, we saw net 45 million of inflows into Bitcoin products, which is interesting because throughout the first quarter of this year, we saw a lot of outflows. For the year net on net, despite the drop in Bitcoin, we've seen $145 million inflow into Bitcoin products and that global AUM is now at 30 billion. So while price is falling, we are still seeing people accumulating and adding that long to their position. Typically structured products are products people tend to hold for some period of time because they like to buy them in tax advantage accounts, a lot of funds like to trade them because they don't need to trade crypto outright. So we are seeing people buying despite decline in prices. A third data point, if we look at the distribution of crypto and wallet addresses, we're seeing increased participation amongst addresses, particularly those that have historically held smaller balances of Bitcoin. So the number of Bitcoin wallets that hold one Bitcoin or less have actually increased by about 12% over the last quarter or two. We've seen the number of large wallets that hold a thousand Bitcoin or more also decrease by a small amount. So what we're seeing is effectively historically the distribution of Bitcoin has been quite chunky with a small number of addresses owning a lot of Bitcoin. But as the network effects of Bitcoin grow, one of the aspirations is earlier holders will sell their Bitcoin, take profits, and it'll start to create a more normalized distribution where we see more ownership in the middle of that bell curve. And that's starting to happen. So I think that's very promising. And then the last thing I'll just say is we've only had Bitcoin exist in an up only environment. This is the first time that Bitcoin's going through an inflationary en environment, fiscal tightening environment. So a lot of the trends we're observing are new. I think three months of data is not really enough to inform a trend. When we look at correlations between Bitcoin and tech, one of the interesting things we see is that during normal market conditions, the correlation is quite low and in fact, statistically unremarkable. It's not statistically significant between tech stocks, between overall equities, between MSCI World Index, which tracks EM and a variety of other assets. And I tweeted this so you can look it up there. Also, gold we tracked. We tracked, I think, 10 different asset classes in their correlation to Bitcoin. So normally, historically, over the last three-year period, correlation during normal period has been fairly low. During periods of high volatility, so three standard deviations from mean, what we do see is increased level of correlation. We track that both on the upside and on the downside. So when prices are rising and prices are falling. And those correlations really depend on what directions prices and other assets are moving. And it really depends on the asset. So what we found is with tech stocks, the correlation is on the upside. So when tech stocks rise, crypto tends to rise. When they fall, crypto tends to fall, but to a smaller degree. The correlation with gold, interestingly, is more prevalent on the downside. So again, I think it's really important to look at the data and to use the data to inform our perspective on the market. When we look at the data, yes, there's more pain ahead because just general markets are hurting. But also, I think long term, there's a ton of capital out there that's looking for opportunities to deploy into crypto and hold long term. This is not a quick flip. If you want to make quick bucks, the current crypto market's not the place to do it. The place to do that was the last freaking 24 months. Right now is when you allocate, you set your position strategically, and you wait for the next cycle. So I'll stop there. Packy, we just went through some correlations. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that Bitcoin topped out really a week or two before the Fed had their major pivot from being super, super dovish to really signaling that they're going to battle inflation with a more hawkish monetary stance. And to your point, Meltem, that was kind of it. And since then, the NASDAQ topped out a week or two later, and it's been down 27 or so percent. Bitcoin down about 
double that. So, Packy, I think based on our conversations in the past, you're more interested in other ecosystems as it relates to crypto than Bitcoin. I think you made it very clear that you find Bitcoin obviously very interesting and is really one of the reasons why so many of these other protocols exist. Talk to me a little bit about the stuff that you're focused on and how you're thinking about this drawdown here. Because really, right now, we have Bitcoin at 600 billion market cap and ETH at, what, about 300, about half that. And it's just got a really different feel now with being cut in half, I guess, over the last six to nine months. Yeah, obviously, I think Bitcoin is incredibly important just given what I'm doing, which is both writing and investing less opportunities to write and invest in new things in that ecosystem. So I've spent less time there. But for me, I'm going to be a broken record. I love the continued position increase opportunities that this is giving. To Melton's point, I'm not selling anything. So I've been just adding Ethereum on the way down, staking that and feeling pretty good about everything. I'm just trying to figure out when the right time to load back up on tech stocks is. I'm holding off a little bit for now. I'm just putting it into symphonies on Composer where I don't have to actually try to time the market or anything like that. But there are some like incredibly juicy opportunities, I think, in that side of the world. I don't have a crystal ball and I can't time how far things are going to fall. So I'm just more conservatively putting money into the market without trying to swing trade anything because anytime I've ever tried to do that, I get my ass kicked. So buy and hold. Here's the thing, guys. Okay, I've been through multiple market cycles, obviously the lead up into the dot com and then the bear market that came after and all the stuff that was revealed after the fact and the same thing with the financial crisis. And we just know that there's just a lot of nasty stuff lurking. If we were to have a sustained bear market, there's just a lot of stuff that is not going to be able to stand on its own two feet. And so here's a guy, this banking freed. I mean, he became a meme instantly with uh, Giselle up there on the stage at some fancy contract. And then he sits down with probably... Smartest crypto troll that exists, Matt Levine from Bloomberg, and he just gets pwned, as you people call it. So are there a lot of false gods out there? And I use that term because we've talked about this on the pod a little bit. Jack Dorsey with his whole Bitcoin maximalism and burn it all down sort of thing. It just seems to be a bit religious, and it seems like a lot of people in the same tribe are ready to go hand-to-hand combat here, and it could get kind of nasty. So I'm just curious. Your thoughts on that a little bit, Peggy? I think those are two very, very different things again, where the Jack Bitcoin versus anything else and Ethereum versus Solana and Avalanche versus X, Y, or Z, like the tribalism among L1s, I think is one thing and it's part of the fun and it's part of the problem and has its pluses and its minuses. And I think anytime that you benefit from having more people enter your ecosystem, just like if you work at a company, there's that pride there. And so there are some good parts about it. And obviously it can devolve and get nasty. And Jack has probably stayed a little too focused on one thing for too long, particularly in the context of Square and Cash App and the fact that it only allows Bitcoin at this point. I think the Sam Bankman-Fried is almost like the atheism equivalent here, where it's not about loyalty to any one particular thing as much as it is about, hey, there's this liquid market. He's really smart and a really good trader. And so he's going to make money in liquid markets the best way that he can. I think the conversation with Matt Levine, I think in some cases to not acknowledge that some of the pieces of this are Ponzi-ish would be outlandish. Like some of the use cases, particularly in the yield farming staking are, hey, stake your assets. And as more people come in and stake, you'll get some of those rewards or we're going to inflate at a ridiculously high APY and you'll get those rewards. And that all relies on more people coming in. Like it's just definitionally Ponzi. It's not criminal. It's not anything like that, but it is definitionally Ponzi. So I think to admit that is normal. 
Makes sense. I mean, listen, I've gotten to know you guys really well over the last, Meltem, you and I go way back, but Packy over the last year and a half or so. And one of the things I think is so unique, a term that we just used before, your transparency and the way in which you talk about very complicated topics and really break it down, I think is absolutely amazing. But Meltem, I, I got to ask you this because in my business, as I think about the stock market and traditional risk markets, we're always thinking, and I know that you've traded traditional markets in the past too, you're always thinking about what can go wrong. What are some worst case scenarios? What are some things that lie beneath in a way? And I'm just curious, and I'm not trying to get you to say something that you think is negative or skeptical about crypto as it's been cut in half right now. But you and I have had these conversations offline. There are plenty of things that you are skeptical about as it relates to just the ecosystem here. What are some things that you think could have potentially negative knock-on effects in a protracted bear market? Let's just say you did get your 80% drawdown from that recent high, unless it stays down like it did in 18 and 19. What are some really negative things that just knock out some of, again, the pillars of the bull case? There's one truth in life I've learned. Earning return requires you to take risk. And I think there is this perception in crypto because a lot of people who entered in 2020 have been operating in an up-only environment. That is not always the case. I've lived through three crypto cycles. I've lived through four commodity cycles. I've gotten punched in the face more times than I can count. At this point, I like it. I think I'm unwell, but that's okay. This podcast is not a therapy session. But look, here's what I think is interesting. One of the fundamental things about crypto is participating in many of these opportunities, whether it's participating in proof of stake, whether it's participating in yield farming in the form of utilizing your assets of collateral, they require you in many instances to be directionally long these crypto assets. And the question really is, Many of these assets, are they assets that you want to be net long? And the answer is, as we're discovering, no, because most of these things are absolute shitcoins. And that's not a criticism, right? It's just I'm being very realistic. Again, my job is to be realistic. I think Sam, right, SBF, he's a trader. He's been a trader for most of his career. He's not attached to things. He's looking at this realistically and opportunistically. Everything is a trade in this market. I believe I'm more missionary than mercenary. I would say Sam's much more mercenary than missionary. But at the end of the day, you have to be willing to be directionally long. And what we've seen with a lot of these yield farming schemes is they rely on unsustainable tokenomics or token emissions that incentivize people to deposit their assets in these protocols in their rush to get these things to market. Because there's a huge ROI for founders They can mint these tokens out of thin air, raise capital from the VCs, get their token out into the market, get people to buy it for the opportunity to earn 100, 200% yield. More tokens get minted as part of inflation. If your protocol has 50% inflation rate in the first year, that yield's going to compress very quickly. People take their tokens, they sell them. The protocol becomes inactive. And in many cases, these yield farming protocols are not really utilized anymore. Once they've had their sort of six to 12 month lifespan, they're very, they become very inactive and people move on to the next thing. Now, does that mean that DeFi in and of itself, these crypto primitives to replicate and introduce new forms and functions for on-chain capital markets are not useful? Absolutely not. I think DeFi is the most innovative thing I've ever seen working in finance fundamentally transformative. The issue is all this stuff is really new. Most of the token models for DeFi protocols fundamentally do not work because they require 
persistent inflation and persistent demand for a token that just cannot be sustained over the long term. And so I think it's really incumbent on us. We're going to go through this period where there's going to be some pain, but we're going to start to figure out what models work. So is it bad? No. Is there some scamming, not so great behavior? Absolutely. But we saw that in cannabis stocks. We saw that in EVs like Nikola for crying out loud, right? Polyglista company hit a $29 billion market cap off a fake video of them rolling a truck downhill. So does this thing out crypto? Absolutely not. I think it's part of every market. Do I think we need to get better at self-policing? Probably, but the bear market's going to take care of that. But once people get punched in the face, they figure it out pretty quickly. It's been funny seeing the, all the tweets that have been like, asset X down 90%, asset Y down 95%, blah, blah, blah. I think the point that you just made, Meltem, on what models survive from the past couple of years and what models don't, which I think is going to be a lot of them. How much of the past couple of years in DeFi do you think gets thrown out in this bear cycle and how much of their learnings come into new protocol designs and new tokenomic designs? Are we starting from zero again or like what percent of what we've done over the past few years do you think makes it through to the next full cycle and the DeFi models that people are using? I think the models that work well We're big fans of Maple. I think they have gotten rid of a lot of protocol inflation. I think that Aave has done a good job despite very low yields. They still have, I think, close to 25 billion of collateral locked in Aave. So a lot of people are using that. Aave, by the way, for those listening, is a decentralized lending market. So basically, you can take any crypto you have as collateral, you can lend it out to earn interest, or you can borrow using that collateral and pay interest. So it's kind of this two-sided marketplace. I think that's seen huge growth. Uniswap needs to figure out their tokenomics. But in terms of adoption, like the numbers on Uniswap are absolutely staggering. And what's crazy to me is there's a ton of protocols out there. Like Liquidity is a market for borrowing against your Ether. So you use your Ethereum as collateral. You pay a 50 basis point origination fee to the protocol. 50 basis points. And you can borrow stable coins. Your loan to value ratio is typically anywhere from 75% to 90%. You can get liquidated once you get to 90%. But like in the traditional world, there's no way you can originate a loan for an asset actual loan for 50 basis points. That protocol, the market cap of their native tokens quite low, but they have close to a billion of collateral locked up. And a lot of people have used that protocol. I'm a big fan of that. Full disclosure, I'm an investor in that personally. There are a lot of projects that I think are seeing a lot of adoption that are the cornerstone these important components of the DeFi space, but they just haven't figured out the mechanisms to transfer the value they're creating to their token holders. And I think that's the fundamental question we're playing with here, right? We do a lot of talking about the theory of the firm. We're trying to eliminate the firm and middlemen, but we don't spend enough time thinking about Kosa's theorem, why the theory of the firm exists in the first place. Because fundamentally, the economic problems we're trying to solve With DeFi, with Web3, with the creator economy, these problems are complex economic problems. And I've yet to see actual economists walk through the models for how tokens help us solve the fundamental issues with transaction pricing and efficiency. In DAOs, you actually do more work for less pay, which is wild. Funny you mentioned the economist point, because like I think we're seeing in the broader market that economists also don't know what the fuck they're doing. And I think it's just easier to exploit in crypto. And I don't think you actually get to this world that we think that we're going to in the next cycle or whatever it is, where there are more sustainable protocols that are replacing the financial rails without going through. Like 
anybody who good intentions, bad intentions, but sees the possibility to do a lot of the things that have been done and think that maybe there's a model where optimistically, if you can inflate for a little while and then bring in exogenous capital and figure out some way that you got to try that almost. And until people go out there and try it, you're not going to be satisfied and go back to something a little bit more basic. And so this is one of the, I think, good things about cycles is that we're probably now in a point where people are like, cool, if I can get 2%, but I can do something that I couldn't have done before, then that's pretty good. All right, people, that all seems a bit like fake plastic trees to me on the DeFi here right now. But a lot of what we just talked about here with these projects and some of the tokenomics, you've been really clear, both of you guys have been, a lot of NFT projects over the last couple of years that you've been involved with, you better be in it for the community, better be in it for a lot of other things than economic value per se. And so a lot of the headlines that we're seeing right now, I think Darren Ravel tweeted this out yesterday, eight of the last 10 crypto punks have been sold at a loss, CryptoPunk273, which supposedly was bought six months ago for a little over a million dollars, just sold for about $140,000. When you wrote your nifty corporates last summer, Packy, I think it was at Visa that paid or MasterCard, one of the two paid $140,000 for a crypto punk. At the time you made the case, well, this was a brilliant marketing move. Again, something from 140 to a million back to 140 doesn't seem like the end of the world, especially in the stock market that we've lived in for the last couple of years. I'm just curious what you're thinking about some of these projects. Forget the OG ones. They're always going to have these big values that get inflated. We know there's just a lot of big money behind them and celebrity and all that sort of stuff. What else is going on? Because we know volumes are down. We know prices are coming down. Obviously, the layer one token prices are coming down in which they're priced in. I'm just curious some of your thoughts there. It's been super interesting. It feels like to your point earlier in the conversation, there are just these like little cracks happening. Like Azuki was one of the more popular projects. And now the founder of that project has been getting a ton of crap for launching three rug pulley projects in the past. And so there's all these things that feel like it's happening in traditional tech too. But when things get a little bit bearish, all of these negative things start coming out. And so there was a Ryan Breslow piece in the New York Times this morning, and you're going to read more and more stories about companies having layoffs and all that. But certainly the same thing is happening on the NFT side of the house. The other side, Land Mint for the Board Ape Yacht Club spent God knows how much money in fees to do that mint and probably could have optimized the contracts better not to do that. And so there's just like all these little cracks, I think, particularly at the bigger project level. I don't know. I feel like I've never gotten too overhyped on thinking that any individual project is going to be worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. And I'm still kind of excited for, I don't even want to use the word utility, but I wrote this piece with Alex Sanko from Shopify last week on the way that they're thinking about doing token gated commerce and what having an NFT or a series of NFTs in your wallet allows merchants and storefronts and the rest of the internet to do when they interact with your wallet. And I think that kind of stuff is super interesting and has been the thing that I've been excited about the most all along. So like to me, super bullish generally that somebody like Shopify comes into the space and they've had their own issues in this market sell-off, but that's these big merchants come into the space and say like, look, there are these really cool things that we have a bunch of smart engineers here couldn't have done before that we can now do because people kind of have their beliefs sitting in a wallet. I'm involved with a couple of projects in the refi or regenerative finance space, one of which is called Toucan. Maybe if I have tokens in my wallet that say that I've offset my carbon footprint, do I get a discount at certain places across the internet that want to show that they're earth positive? There's all these ways that the internet can respond to you when you have NFTs in your wallet and when you have different tokens in your wallet that it can't right now. Like That's the stuff that has excited me all along. And so again, I think this is another opportunity for people to kind of build more stuff like that in a bear market that is less price driven and more like, holy shit, look at this cool stuff that we can now do because of these new primitives that we've been building and getting excited about over the past few years. 
Yeah, and Meltem, that was your model, I think, in the 1819 bear market. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, look, I think on NFTs, the metaverse, Web3, all of this, this is sort of classic. The promises of these technologies far exceed our current capabilities. The metaverse already exists. It's called the internet. And any ability to deliver a well-rendered, fully functional metaverse that delivers a new customer experience is not going to be around for a long time because all of the infrastructure that's needed to make that happen from computation to energy to the devices themselves, it just doesn't exist. And if it does, it's not yet at the scale or the level of affordability that's necessary to make it an actual mass adopted trend. Right now, the metaverse feels like Google Glass to me. We're like, cool. Nice if you have your Valve Index, maybe, but I don't want to talk to a bunch of Bitcoin and crypto people in a really poorly rendered version of the Sims. No, thank you. So I think there is this vision that people have and the reality of where we are today, which like to be very fair, Bitcoin was there when I first started working in professionally in 2015. We're talking about Lightning Network. Seven years later, we're just starting to ship some of these features on Lightning that we were talking about seven years ago. So I think we sometimes underestimate how long things take. On the topic of NFTs, people want to flex. The fact is, there's always going to be a market for people to flex. Luxury retail is a $1 trillion market. The top 10 fashion conglomerates in the world, luxury retail conglomerates in the world, have a combined market cap of over a trillion dollars. LVMH recording record profits, RMS recording record profits, Caring Group record profits. Why? In an age when we're increasingly online, people want to flex. So instead of buying a Chanel bag for $8,000, I'm going to buy a cool NFT for $8,000 that I can flex on my Instagram or on my Twitter or wherever it may be. I think the behavior here is no different. NFTs are a way for you to say something about yourself. I think in a way, Bitcoin went through that phase where owning Bitcoin and knowing about Bitcoin was kind of like owning a Birkin bag where it said something about you and how cool and hip and awesome you were and what eclectic of taste you had. Same thing with NFTs. So I think we are going to go through this period where people are going to look at themselves and realize, holy shit, I spent $2 million on a pixelated photo of a character. Now the question is, how can these communities continue to deliver status and brand? I think at some point there has to be convergence between stuff happening in the digital domain, stuff happening in the physical domain. I think events are a big part of that. Merch is a big part of that. Making people feel like they're part of an exclusive sort of community is a big part of that. And the communities that continue to do well, like I think we'll continue to see the value of their NFTs preserved. The last thing I'll say is I've been getting approached by virtual brokers who want to help me buy land in the metaverse. I am short land in the metaverse. I think that is a not great value proposition. It's like uh, people who are selling you land on Powder Mountain. It's like, yes, we might do the whole build it and they will come thing. But I don't know in the short term and in the medium term, I think there's better places to deploy your capital. <laughs> Call me a skeptic. Maybe I'm dumb. I'm a boomer, apparently. Well, here's the deal. It makes sense to be short land in the metaverse and also with mortgage rates at what, five and a half percent on 30 years. I think people are going to be shorting the IRL real estate also soon. Well, listen, Meltem Demers, Packy McCormick, thank you for joining us on OK Computer. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.